Every couple years, Ben goes on vacation, and I sing an intro improvisation. It's effectively wild. Good morning, and welcome to episode 918 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus. Brought to you by our Patreon supporters and by the Play Index at BaseballReference.com. I'm Sam Miller. Ben is not here today. We are joined by a very full house, however. Uh, we have co-hosting with me, Craig Goldstein. Hello, Craig. Hi. Uh, <laughs> uh, we, uh, we also have uh, George Bissell is doing the recording. He might hop in. George, feel free to hop in if you want to. Feel free to not hop in if you don't want to. Feel free to respond to this if you want to. What's up, Sam? And our guests are Kate Morrison and Russell Carlton, uh, who are here to talk about their four-part barn burner that ran a little bit more than one week ago on Baseball Prospectus uh, that took a extremely analytical uh, and uh, contextual look at the um, challenges of getting hired uh, by a Major League Baseball front office and the complications for the sport that those challenges introduce. Uh, so Kate and Russell, hello and welcome. Hello. Yo. So I wanted to ask, um, first of all, what was the question that kicked this off? Because I don't know if you had planned it as a four-part series originally. I don't know if you had a list of 100 <laughs> questions that you wanted to answer or if it just ended up being that way because uh, you were G-chatting one day and some small question spiraled into a much larger one. So how did it begin? I mean, I think – oh, God. I mean, I could go back and look in Slack, but um, – I I know I was ranting about the black boxing of certain sets of uh, data and talking about how uh, as we move into new eras of analysis that the closing off of certain areas might mean that it is even more difficult for people who don't go through say, a particular college program or uh, don't have an exact background to get into a front office and what that might mean, you know, that, and then that kind of spiraled. Yeah, there's like five um, or six different lines of thought that we had been batting around yeah. in, in the, the official Slack room and the, um, you know, stuff that I had had in the back of my head, stuff that Kate was thinking about. And at one point, um, it was just kind of, I think Kate said something about, she wanted to write something about internships. And I, uh, I said, Oh yeah, that's cool. And, um, we ended up, we're like, Oh, we should co-write this. And it turned into this gigantic four parter that was 10,000 some words. And, um, <laughs> after, after, after we finished writing it, I'm like, well, I'm never doing that again. <laughs> yeah. Internships really emerge as, as sort of one of the most important parts of this piece because they really are the, the as you guys put it, the node through which, um, you know, almost a, a huge percentage of hiring uh, happens. Uh, a huge percentage of people in front offices get into the jobs. And in that, uh, uh, because of that structure, in a way, it um, has trickling effects all the way through the sport if who is involved in decision making who gets hired? What types of people get hired? So m most, many of us had internships at some point uh, in our lives, but probably we had internships that would be considered um, almost unrecognizable in the current intern format. So can you tell us what are baseball internships like? Well, well I can't tell you because I've never had one. 
the I mean the way baseball is kind of following something that that the broader labor market has been doing, um, and that's they are moving much to, more toward a an internship model, partly for cost control reasons. Interns are cheap, um, but partly also kind of on a try it before you hire it um, sort of of model for um, for hiring, and you know. It, the thing about a baseball internship is that, you know, it's very competitive. The, um, some of them pay, some of them don't, some of them, um, most the ones that do pay, um, don't pay very much. And the thing about a baseball internship is that, you know, you think about if you want to be an accountant, you could go to, you know, any, whatever city you live in, there's going to be a whole bunch of, uh, there's going to be a whole bunch of places that need accountants. And so you, you can, Pick one of those. You know, there's there's only 26 cities that have a major league team, and there's only 30 teams total, and so you know you kind of have to go wherever it is. So there's a certain amount of geographical uh, instability that you have. You kind of have to just go wherever the the gig is, and you know not everybody can do that, and not everybody can move somewhere for um, for whether it's a three month thing or a ten month thing or however they structure it. Um, and, and then live on, you know, what might be minimum wage or what might be, um, might be nothing. Sure. And as I was reading through it, I noticed, obviously there's a theme of, you know, gatekeeping the, uh, privilege kind of as, as I saw it or as I, uh, read from it, but it also stuck out to me that this is something that, as you mentioned, is something that comes from the, the broader market as a whole. And that it really stems from people hiring be a trust. It's have I seen this person do something or do I trust them to be capable to do it uh, as opposed to sampling kind of a broader spectrum of people and, and just putting their faith in the, in the hiring process that these people will be qualified to do it. Is, is there anything throughout this, this time that you thought there's a way to address that? Because that, you know, that can also be seen as nepotism or, or any number of things, but it, it seems to me, just that I've encountered both in baseball and in, in real life, that's a very hard thing to overcome. Kind of looking at it from the the point of view, I mean, the internet has, has done quite a bit for democratizing at least a, a little bit of it um, in that, you know, that now there's, there is a forum for going out and being able to say, um, you know, here, here's a portfolio of my work and, you know, maybe even get noticed by somebody in a front office somewhere who, you know, is reading something and, and that links to your stuff, and and that's that's something that's that's nice there. We at least have that. But you know, the other side of it is that you've got you know for even for positions that don't even exist, teams get a whole bunch of applications. I mean, they get people sending them letters saying, "I'd love to work for you," just on spec that there might be a position open at some point, and there has to be some sort of filtering process that goes through there. So I mean, there's there there becomes a capacity problem of how do I even begin to, I have 500, you know, resumes on my desk. How do I even begin to, uh, to filter through these? And, you know, how do I, um, how do I tell the good ones from the bad ones? Um, and in then, a, in and a world where there's, yeah, there's a whole bunch. Yeah. I was just saying that after you've gone through that first set of, you know, are these people even remotely qualified? Then you have the business decision side come in where it makes sense from a business standpoint, as, as Russell said, you know, cost control, to hire interns because if you hire somebody who wants to change careers and they have like two law degrees and something like that, they're obviously going to command a lot more money than someone who's just graduated, you know, from a sports management, you know, degree at Rice. 
just to, to provide an example. Cost control is such an interesting thing when whenever it comes to baseball because we these are businesses where we think of them primarily as employing um, you know Josh Hamiltons and they're <laughs> willing to you know they're willing to spend twenty five million dollars um, on you know on a single person uh, even though there's enormous uncertainty about how well that person is going to perform they're willing to go from eighty million to ninety million in a uh, contract negotiation um, you know in two minutes and yet. Uh, we see them uh, in all sorts of other ways uh, run like a very, very tight um, uh, business. And so you see that, um, you know, I think, Russell, you've written about minor league nutrition where uh, the investment in something better than white bread and peanut butter uh, would be uh, relatively like almost, well, I guess it would literally be peanuts <laughs> because <laughs> I just said peanut butter. <laughs> all right. Uh, but, uh, and yet they don't, uh, this seems to be something that they, um, that teams kind of uh, took a long time to realize. Uh, you see it, I think, to some degree in the Dominican academies, although uh, more investment has gone there. And um, you see it in minor league player salaries, where the entire farm system makes, uh, you know, basically what a middle reliever gets uh, over the course of a season. Uh, and um, and so uh, I always wonder whether there is something that they see as an as a benefit of this beyond simply cost control. If they think that, for instance, with the internships, that this is part of the trial, that they're testing their entry-level workers by putting them uh, into almost like a hazing situation, um, and uh, that at the end of this, they will see who was willing to work the 18-hour days, who was really willing to emerge and motivate themselves. Uh, and I am probably, well, I, w- I was going to say, I'm, maybe I'm giving them too much credit for this, uh, and but maybe even if that is the strategy, still maybe it's cruel <laughs> and and inhumane. I'm not sure. Well, it's a it's something that you see a lot, and you you know it's not just in baseball, but it's the it's this mentality of if you really want it, you'll sacrifice, which is one of my like least favorite things in the world. Is this whole well, if you really really want this, and you'll give a hundred and ten percent, and you'll you'll sacrifice everything. Well, that philosophy neglects to understand that sacrificing the same percentage for one person means going from a oh well my buddy could could I could have taken this uh, you know 50,000 a year out of college you know something or other because my my you know my dad or my friend or my you know mentor or something but instead I took this internship while ignoring the fact that a, a sacrifice of that same magnitude would send someone else who might be just as smart, might be just as qualified coming out of college, but to send them from being moderately in debt to a college to being incredibly in debt with credit cards. Um, I think that is, so, yeah, that is, that is a, I think that is a very smart way of putting it. That it, it, that it almost seems like they want to take the model of minor league players where you have to prove your will, your hashtag want, your makeup yeah. uh, through there like is a Goldstein it, it, on this podcast. What? Uh, there is Goldstein on this podcast. The wrong, the, always the, the wrong, wrong one. Though. Always. Uh, the wrong. <laughs> so, uh, so, so, Kate, you you did you did a lot of kind of uh, you did some math and um, looked at the uh, cost of living in various cities and um, and demonstrated just what you do give up. So, can you put in perspective what the cost 
of of living in a you know major league city is relative to what the actual um, compensation is for one of these internships? Well, per our research, we found that most of these internships, if they're paid, so most of the unpaid ones are going to be for college credit. So those are open to students, you know, still have who haven't completed their degree yet. So in those cases, you're usually getting, um, you know, you might have to rent an apartment, but you're usually getting some help from your parents still, or there's scholarships available because if it's for college credit, then you can apply, you know, you can apply for and then apply certain scholarships. So there's sometimes financial aid, or you can take out that money under a student loan umbrella, which sucks, but is, you know, different than taking it out under a credit card. Um, uh, after you've graduated, a lot of the internships that, that we were able to kind of scrape together were they pay from minimum wage to about $15 an hour. And um, let me let me pull my numbers up so that I'm not misquoting myself here. Um, but they're, you know, $15 an hour is what's being currently discussed in the political world as a, as a quote-unquote living wage rather than just a minimum wage. Um, on that, in the cheapest minor league city so somewhere like arlington you could rent you know if you're making 15 an hour and you're getting a full 40 hours a week which is one thing that some people you know that hasn't you know we didn't i don't think we actually discussed but some internships you don't get a full 40 hours they work you for 30 which okay 30 hours not a full thing not a full-time job but also is there enough time for you to get a second job to actually make you know, all of our numbers are predicated on the idea that you're working a full 40, no more, no less, and getting paid as such. So basically, if you want to live in Arlington, which is where the Rangers are, you know, and there are a couple other, um, I think that we found that Kansas City is kind of in this this range too. Um, you know, you could, you could rent an apartment by yourself. You'd be fine if you're making the 15, you know, if you're making the $15 an hour. You know, if you're making 40 hours, you know, 40 hours a week, $15 an hour, you could you could live there. You wouldn't really be able to put aside any savings, but you wouldn't be going any further into debt. Of course, if you don't live in Arlington already, then you have to move there. And if you're not making the full 15, if you're making 725, then it suddenly starts looking a lot more difficult. So you get roommates, but that only really cuts your rent in half. You get this, you, you cut corners. And it's possible to cut those corners. It's possible, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, if you're living in one of the cheaper cities, it's it's, po it's absolutely possible to make it work. But sometimes you end up sacrificing things that you probably shouldn't. Like, you have to pay for healthcare. You're not gonna, you know, you're not gonna go out and get yourself decent insurance. You're gonna go out and get yourself the I'm legally covered, don't, you know, don't find me government insurance. Yeah, and, so what happens and if you have a medical emergency? Then that's more money out of pocket, yeah, and, uh, out of a pocket fact, that's not exactly deep to begin with. Mm -hmm. In in fact, you brought up the some internships are thirty hours a week, and part of the reason they do that is so that they do not have to cover your insurance. Um, so it's a little more cost cutting and controlling on the on the team side uh, is part of why. Yeah. I, and I, as I went through an uh, interview process uh, for an internship, that that was explained to me. So that was. That definitely does happen, and it definitely is the case. That's something that also skews the hiring process towards younger people because younger people are more like, you know, if you're under 25, then you can still be on your parents' insurance. So you're more likely to look at an internship like this and say, oh, I can afford this because my parents are paying my insurance, not me. Absolutely. That says yeah, someone who was on her parents' insurance until about a year <laughs> ago. So I know what I'm talking about here. Yeah. Um, so one of the... 
one of the other things that the article touched on in terms of, um, you know, again, touching on gatekeeping is the rise of the Ivy, as, as uh, it seems like uh, Jack Moore put it. Um, can you guys, one of you, speak to basically what you found in terms of the representation of uh, or perhaps over-representation of Ivies in Major League front office, specifically baseball operations? Yeah, I mean, when I, I there was, uh, what do we have that I, I don't know the numbers in front of me, I think it was like 16%, which is one in six of the people that we looked at. And we just looked at the American League because we just needed the easy way to chop our work in half. But um, of the people that we were looking at, uh, about one in six had an Ivy League diploma on the wall. And I mean, the Ivies are, they're really, when you get down to it, eight little schools in the Northeast. And that's really all there. I, I think we put in there some point of comparison that if uh, it was about 10 or 11% went to Big Ten schools. And if you look at it just from probability standpoint, you know, Ohio State, just one of the Big Ten, probably uh, graduates more people than the entirety of the Ivy Leagues do on a, on a yearly basis. And and yet, you know, you see so many more from, from the Ivy Leagues. And now, I mean, that, that then gets into, okay, well, you know, um, are people who go to Ivy League schools necessarily smarter or better workers or whatever, however you want to say that? Or, yeah, and yes. or do they have pre-filtered, connections? Pre-filtered, or, yeah, pre-filtered right, for I mean, you. For your convenience. Yeah, I mean, there's, that's, yeah. So, I mean, but then you start getting into some of those questions around, okay, well, what, you know, what, how do people really get into the Ivy League? And that gets into some of the social dynamics of, again, kind of a broader social question uh, around access and privilege and things like that. Um, you know, I mean, it's not to say that, you know, everybody in a, in a major league front office has an Ivy league degree, but at the same time, you know, that's, it's more than we would just randomly expect, uh, by chance. And, you know, let's, let's take a look and see, okay, well, what, what's really driving that? So I, um, I'll, I'll play, you know, I I don't even know if this is devil's advocate. I mean, this is the, the natural response to this is that yes, uh, you know, generally speaking, uh, your odds are pretty good with a Harvard grad. He's, you know, he or she is going to be somebody who uh, is well trained, uh, has a history of success, uh, and will probably be a pretty good worker for you. And you also talked about um, college majors, and they tend to come from certain college majors, uh, and those are skills that are desired by front offices. So it makes sense that if you were a team, you would choose a Harvard graduate from one of those, um, one of those. Um, uh, fields of study and going to the um, you know the sort of way that they leverage the competitiveness of these internships to lower costs that makes sense it's perfectly business appropriate uh, and it made me think a little bit of the story of Dan Evans how Dan Evans got into the game friend of the podcast Dan Evans who as I recall uh, happened to pick up the phone one day at his school uh, newspapers offices. They asked if there was anybody there who wanted to be an intern for the White Sox. Dan Evans said, sure, I will. And then he went and worked 18-hour days for no pay while he was still a full-time student for a number of years before he finally got a job. And Dan Evans turned out to be a great baseball uh, mind, front office executive, brought a lot of great things to teams. And so you could say, well, that model works pretty well at filtering out the Dan Evanses uh, or filtering out everybody but the Dan Evanses. So you have the super dedicated, super hard workers who are willing to um, give you a lot for not that much. So that's the that that's all a fine argument from a team's perspective. If you were a 
a middle manager, then all of those things would make sense to you. So uh, why shouldn't a team do this, putting aside any social implications? What, why did you guys ultimately conclude that this is a threat, or maybe that's too strong, but uh, a threat to a baseball team's actual competitiveness? The same reason that sabermetrics was a revolution. When you end up with all of the same thinking, when you find all the people from the same sources before sabermetrics, before this whatever we're calling it, you know, front offices were run, I think no one would argue, by baseball people. So by former players, by people who've been around the game for a very, very long time, you know, by 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 people who who had this one understanding of the game and for better or for worse were sure that their understanding or had never been challenged on their understanding that their understanding of the game was correct. Then you have a wave of new thinkers come in and you get all of this upheaval and you get new ideas and baseball gets more, I mean, it gets more interesting first off, which is good for the game. When the game's more interesting, more people pay attention. Um, But you also have competitive advantages discovered and for a while there you have some upheaval and it gets interesting and it's because you have new thinkers. The problem now is that almost every team save like one is very much has very much bought into this idea that was the original revolution and now everybody's starting to look the same again instead of having all baseball people you now have all economics majors or all business ma- you know all people from this one little narrow chunk of the pie which already tends to be a narrow chunk of the pie of any university or of any set of people and so you're they've they've gone from broadening their pool of ideas to narrowing it again and, and so it's you know if if i would put it as simply as possible it's that you're losing it you're losing an advantage by only bringing in people from this yeah sure you may have an idea of how they're going to perform but isn't it better to sometimes bring in new ideas even if you're not you know even if it's not like i you know it's it's that whole see it's it's it goes back to prospects. You have a guy who has a high floor, you know, you know, high floor, low ceiling. You know what he's gonna be. He's always gonna give you this. But then you have this other guy who let's call him uh, Goey Jallo or something like that for for fun <laughs> times. Um, who has this really high ceiling and can be really exciting, but he also has a pretty low floor. There's a reason that the top 50 has guys with those high ceilings above guys with those high floors. It's because they can, because the guys with the high ceilings, if they succeed, when they succeed can change the game more than the guys with the high floors. So you just have to bring that style of thinking into a front office. I was very interested um, by one of your later conclusions that, that the amount of, um, the I, I don't know the amount of benefit of having the world's you know greatest big data scientists in baseball seems kind of low at this point. That if you look at all the work that's been done to improve projection systems over the course of fifteen years, for instance, there really isn't that much better than that we can do, and that it's unlikely that you're going to find some big um, some big separating uh, strategy from big data at this point. Uh, and uh, that, sure, you invest in it, but thinking that it's going to there's there's you know, refinements you, that are still occurring. Yeah. yeah, I mean, there's still refinements yeah, that are recurring. I mean, you're seeing that even at BP, but mm. 
there's only so many times you can refine something until it turns to dust. Right. The 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 uh, what happened with the A's in Moneyball uh, is not likely to happen right now with big data. That you're unlikely to find something that so separates you from the rest of the league that you can basically print money for a few years off of it. Is that fair? Yeah, I mean, the thing about big data is big data is a tool. And I think that people have mistaken the tool for uh, for the idea itself. And if you think of the that, that the idea is the most valuable currency in the game of baseball, and if you think about that, you know, what, what happened was that, you know, people came in with ideas that said, if we look at this from a broader context and we use the tools of big data to look at it, we might get a different answer than, than we had, uh, we had previously thought we had. And, you know, I think that there, there, you know, we may get something out of, of big data. You never know what's around the corner, but what that is, is that big data is a mathematical way of, formulating and, and expressing an idea and that without the idea first that you can have supercomputers you can have people with degrees and all this stuff you can know all the programming languages you can have statcast have all stuff and doesn't make a damn bit of difference because frankly if you don't have an idea that that powers that that query then you know you're just kind of calculating batting average again you know i mean that's that's fine um, I think that what we're seeing is that, you know, as Kate said, we're tilting back toward where everybody kind of looks the same again, and they come at the world from a very, from a same, the same point of view. And, you know, whether that's, and we talked about demographics and of, of race and class and gender and, and things like that. We talked about college majors. We talked about worldview. And if everybody kind of comes at the questions or at least the problem the same way how they how they look at things how they identify what's a problem or even what's a reasonable question to ask starts to get really stale and what you need is people who are going to be there to challenge the assumption that that's that's going on you know i don't i don't think that we should advocate oh we should get rid of all the quants now you need that capacity you need you need that in your 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 uh, your tool belt um, but at the same time if your questioning process is going stale, then you have a big problem. So, so, and this is uh, along the lines of somewhat playing devil's advocate. I guess my question would be that if you have uh, some revolution in terms of diversity of thought, people approaching the game differently, but they are coming from Ivy League students and or you know interns, and the way things are always done, <laughs> but there is a diversity of thought. Um, are would that would that satisfy you? Would that make you? I don't think you're going to get a true diversity of thought without changing at least something about the way the interview process is done. But that's just, you know. Sure, just sure. It's, yeah, it's a, it's a hypothetical. But for example, if you changed kind of the the majors that you drew your talent pool from, as opposed to the locations or the schools or something like that, you could potentially get a, a different angle on on ideas and things like that. Would that would that be satisfying to people, do you think? Or does it need to be more of an overhaul? I think that, I mean, the question of, you know, whether if we talk about, you know, diversity in, in, the, in the names of the diploma that are on the diplomas on the walls, 
or diversity and race and gender or things like that. And I think business case, um, I mean, the, the question of whether or not that's a good unto itself to have that diversity, that's a political question that I think people are going to have different views on and some are going to agree and some are not going to agree. Realistically, I mean, you're talking about teams that are businesses and that, um, you know, may or may not be interested in making, um, you know, social policy or, or, uh, or breaking social ground. Mm-hmm. I have uh, just one last question to put a bow on all this, and maybe it'll just be you, Kate, because maybe Russell's gone. I don't know. Uh, if you were put in charge of a team's hiring, uh, sort of entry-level hiring, um, what would you do? Give me your, like, sort of three or four steps that you would do uh, to fix this and to, um, I don't know, maybe not fix this, but to put your team in the best position to win and to put yourself in the best position to sleep at night. Are you saying that there's, like... Is this an expansion team or is this an already, you know, form team that has something of a analytics department that maybe is looking to expand? Uh, neither. It, uh, it is, it is, well, it, it is a team that exists. It's a theoretical question that I just got, that I just got specific on. Um, it's a team, no, it's a team that exists. It's the Rangers and you're not, you're not intended to, uh, to expand anything. Uh, you're just in charge of hiring the next group of entry level, uh, front office workers. What, how do you do it? I'm sorry. It's going to be some extremely entertaining silence while I think for a minute. I, you know, it's well, thinking for where... a minute is a good, no, thinking for a minute should be a, the first step for whoever has this job. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if it meant hiring fewer people but being able to pay them more, I think that people who are, you know, not worrying about whether or not they're going to make rent are going to be able to provide you with better ideas and with better, um, you know, with, with a higher quality of work. Um, so that'd be the first consideration. I, I think that it would be good if people were able to go look at, you know, expanding those resources. So going to the people you know and not just saying, well, give me your, like, two brightest students, but saying, who are the people that you have or who are the people that you would trust to be new thinkers? Um, obviously, you want to hire somebody who has an interest in baseball, but maybe you look outside the box because it's not just your, you know, there are people out there who love baseball. I mean, I think that the, the people that write for BP are an example of this, like, no... You know, there are people out here who who love baseball and and think deeply about baseball and complexly about baseball, but don't major in you know sports management or don't necessarily even major in economics or in business. So you have to kind of get outside the business school a little bit, if possible. Um, I mean, and all of this is like pie in the sky because I I understand how incredibly difficult it is when you're trying to hire and you you know and. <sighs> It's really, it's a, it is a really, really complicated question, and I hope that that Russell and I didn't make it seem like it was something that would be easily fixed because it's not. There's a lot of moving parts, and there's a lot of checks, and you know, a lot of there's a lot of weights that you have to balance against each other. But I do think that there is room to go out there and find people who think complexly and people who think differently and people who think interestingly, and then you can train them to have the specific sets of skills that you want. So, like, you know. There may be someone out there who doesn't know R, but they have interesting new thoughts about baseball. Okay, let's uh, let's end it there. Um, thank you, guys. Uh, thank you, Kate. Thank you, Russell. Thank you, George. Thank you, Craig. And thank you to Ben for returning tomorrow. 
uh, for a, a new episode. Uh, and uh, I think that's it. There will probably be no extra reading done at the end of this episode. I think we're just going to like, just, we're just going to end. It's just going to be like ending we, right right now. You you don't you don't want to plug Patreon or your Sam, Sam, do you want to plug your book? Nah. <laughs> Well, be sure to go to patreon.com slash effectively wild and pledge your undying support to uh, to effectively wild. Uh, five people whose names I'm going to completely make up on the spot are uh, the, the five people from Voltron, I guess. And um, <laughs> let's see here. Their book, the only rule is it has to work. Their wild experiment in... I forget what the subtitle is. I've, but anyway, something or other, uh, something doing with baseball. Doing teams. It was a baseball book. It's you know, it's the Fourth of July, right? Um, and uh, yeah, for uh, everybody on the phone, uh, this has been effectively wild. <laughs>